This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, so let's begin. <clears throat> In this week's parsha, Hashem says to Moshe <clears throat> make a base of Mikdash. But the base of Mikdash wasn't just the meeting place of Hashem and the Klyasrol. It was supposed to be, at that moment, the highest level of Kedusha, and every one of the Kalim were invested with tremendous wisdom and tremendous, tremendous forethought. And Hashem gave exact directions to Moshe Benu how to make each of the Kalim. <clears throat> each Kali, Hashem told Moshe, make it in such and such manner, in such and such form, and the menorah as well. Hashem said, make the menorah from the base to the kaftar, to the keft, each of the details of it, Hashem explained to Moshe. At which point, <clears throat> Moshe Benu says to Hashem, I do not understand how to make the menorah. Hashem said, fine, I'm going to show you an image of it in fire on the mountain. And from that image, you'll see exactly how to make the menorah. In fact, Rashi explains that's what happened. Hashem showed an image of the menorah in the mountain to show Moshe Beno exactly how to make the menorah. After showing the image, Moshe Beno says, I still do not understand how to do it. At which point Hashem says, fine, take the clump of gold that you were going to make into to the menorah and throw it into the fire. Moshe Benu did that, he threw it into the fire, and from the fire came the menorah, out it came, and as the Pesach says, Vasisa menorah zav tar miksha, and make a menorah, te'asah menorah, the menorah shall be made. Rashi explains that Moshe Benu did not actually make the menorah. When he threw that clump of gold into the fire, the fully formed menorah came out from it. Now just to understand what's going on over here, and the complexity of the menorah was not the physical presentation of it. That might have been complex, but certainly Moshe Benu was a very wise and incredibly intelligent individual. And after Hashem showed him in the fire how to build it, I'm sure at that point Moshe Benu physically understood the components. But there were tremendous sodos, tremendous secrets, tremendous kavanas involved in it. And it was beyond human capacity to understand how to do it. At which point Hashem said, fine, you don't understand. And take your clump of gold, throw it into the fire. And again, the menorah came out on its own. Now, I'd like to ask the obvious question on this Rashi. The hallmark of a good educator is to understand the level of the student and be able to break down the information and the education to the student's level. So, for instance, if you're a brilliant Tamachacham, and you try to teach marshals to a fifth grade class in Ascholas Gemara, you're not doing a very good job. If you're trying to teach advanced calculus to third graders, you're not a good educator because the first hallmark, the first sign of a good educator is knowing the level of the student and conveying the information on the student's level. So here's the question. Hashem knew that Moshe Rabbeinu would not be able to fathom how to make the menorah. Shem says, make the menorah. Moshe Benu says, I don't know how. Shem says, let me show you an image of it in fire on the mountain, and then you'll make it. Shem shows him the image, and still Moshe Benu can't figure it out. Hashem understood Moshe Benu's capacity, and therefore Hashem knew that Moshe Benu would not be able to fathom how to do it. Why then did Hashem make Moshe go through these steps? Let me explain to you how to make a menorah. Let me show you an image of it. Only when you realize you don't know how to do it. Now, take the clump of gold, throw it into the fire. If Moshe Benu was not capable of understanding how to create this menorah, 
Why did Hashem bother to show him the image in fire? <clears throat> Why did he bother explaining to him? He's anyway going to just throw his clump in, of gold into the flame. Why make him go through the steps? Why make him see the images first? And to understand the answer to this, I think we're going to begin by <clears throat> focusing on the very, very basics of bitochan, the very basics of hishtadlis. And let me begin with the following observation. The basic tenant of our entire religion is that Hashem is utterly, completely involved in every facet of our lives. The first is Rambam Zanimamin, Zanimamin Bemuna Shalema. I understand with absolute clarity of vision, Shaboris Barach, that Hashem Bore Umanig is the creator and one who runs, and he alone He alone did, does, and will do all activities under the sun. In plain, simple language, no happenstance, no random occurrences, Hashem intimately involved in every single activity, every single event of my life, Hashem is right there. So here is the question. I understand Hashem's part. The question is, what's my part? And how do we tease apart the ishtadlis, the bitachan? How much is a person supposed to trust Hashem? How much is this person supposed to do? How does one find that balance between proper bitachan and proper ishtadlis? So let's tease the two apart. Let's separate Hashem's part, and then later we'll get to our part. So let's begin with Hashem's part. The Sefer Chinuch explains there is a mitzvah, do not take revenge. But he explains, don't take revenge, not because it's bad for your midos. And when the Torah says, don't take revenge, not because it's going to cause strife and further machlokas, he says, don't take revenge, because if you take revenge against another human being, you're imputing powers to man that he doesn't have. When you take revenge, what you're saying is, you harmed me. You caused me pain. By doing that, you're destroying your entire emuna, and you're denying the fact that Hashem runs the world. The Sefer Chinuch explains, don't take revenge because you're pretending that man has power that he doesn't have. As the Chovos of Ovos explains, the basics of our emuna system is that no human being can harm me, no human being can help me. If you like to understand in simple language, imagine I walk down the street and I'm surrounded by a loose sight bubble. You can throw stones and you can try to jump through. You can't penetrate. You can't harm me. That loose sight bubble protects me. There's no loose sight bubble, but Hashem is right there. As I walk down the street, when I get up in the morning, when I go to sleep at night, when I get behind the wheel of my car, Hashem is there 24-7, 365. And no human being can harm me. No human being can help me. And what that means in plain, simple language is that Hashem is involved in every single activity in my life. If I take revenge against another human being, I'm denying Hashem's presence. Meaning to say, if I'm supposed to suffer that embarrassment, I will suffer that embarrassment. If I'm not supposed to suffer that embarrassment, you nor anyone else could bring that to me. In plain, simple language, my destiny is not in human beings' hands. It's completely in the Yad Hashem. And again, the Chovaz of Ovaz explains to us, as you cannot harm me, you can scheme, you can dream, you can plan, and but I walk around with the loose side bubble, as you cannot harm me, so too you cannot help me. If my uncle is the head of Sloan Kettering, 
If my time is up, there's nothing he's going to be able to do to help me. If my friend is the richest fellow in North America, if I'm not supposed to have that money, he'll give me money. It'll go in this pocket, out that pocket. As no human being can harm me, no human being can help me. I'm completely under Hashem's dominion. Hashem is involved 24-7, 365 in every outcome of my life. And if you like an illustration as to how involved Hashem is in our life, I'll give you an interesting illustration. I don't know if you've ever had a teacher who taught you life lessons, but I remember very clearly as a child, I had a teacher who taught us how to take a compliment. I remember it was third or fourth grade, and the teacher said, when someone compliments you, don't squirm, don't look away, and look the person in the eye and say, thank you very much. Now, that's an important life lesson, how to take a compliment. But I never had a teacher who taught me how to take an insult. But the Chavaz of Chavaz does. He says, when someone insults you, when someone cuts into the essence of you, you're supposed to turn your eyes heavenwards and say, thank you, Hashem, for revealing a few of my many flaws. Because I'm supposed to know and understand that if I was not supposed to suffer that pain, not you nor anyone else could bring that to me. And more than that, if I was supposed to suffer that pain and you weren't the one to deliver it, I would have dropped a hot plate of soup. I would have tripped up the stairs. If I was supposed to suffer that embarrassment, it would have come to me. And you cannot harm me. You cannot help me. I didn't ask you to be the nudnik to deliver the message, but you are but the delivery boy delivering the message. And if you'd like a muscle to what this Ma'adovadome, imagine the following. Imagine I'm speaking and I'm holding a microphone, and because I'm speaking this microphone, the loudspeaker projects my voice. And at a certain point, I'm speaking into the microphone, and I turn to you and I say, you're a bleep, bleep, and I call you every name in the book. You turn red, you turn white, you stand up, and in anger, you walk right over to the loudspeaker and punch it right in the subwoofer. Now, if you were to walk over to me and punch me in the jaw, we could debate whether that's clever or not. But walking over to the loudspeaker and punching it in the subwoofer is fundamentally flawed because the loudspeaker didn't harm you. There's a human being holding a microphone, speaking into the microphone, and you're hearing the replication of that voice through the loudspeaker. When someone insults me, I'm supposed to recognize that he has no power. He has no control over what happens to me. And there's someone above who's delivering a message to me. I didn't ask you to be the nudnik, to be the delivery boy. But that message was sent to me from Hashem. I'm supposed to turn my eyes heavenwards and say the words, thank you, Hashem, for revealing a little of my many flaws. And this is the understanding that a Jew is supposed to have every activity of my life, everything that I'm involved in, whether it's business, whether it's personal, and whether it's suffering and pain, and whether it's going through all the activities of my life, I'm supposed to know that Hashem is there 24-7, 365, totally engaged, totally involved in every single outcome. Now let's call that Hashem's part. Hashem is the master of creation, Hashem is the maintainer of creation, and Hashem is the one who orchestrates every activity in my life. That's Hashem's role. So, But now the question is, so what's my part? And what am I supposed to do? What's my hishtadlis? And to understand this, let's focus on a different area of the Torah. 
Every word in the Torah is weighed, measured, and accounted for. And every word has tremendous, tremendous principles, concepts, and foundations to teach us. And yet you'll find the Torah mentioning certain things that don't seem to make a big difference in our life. Let me give you a good for instance. Noah was told, build a teva. The teva is 300 amas long, 50 amas wide, 30 amas tall. Why do we, 3,000 odd years later, need to know the dimension of Noah's teva? How long, how wide, how tall? What difference does it make? Rabbeinu Machai says, the Torah is teaching us a foundational principle. Let's do the math. Let's assume an ama, and we'll call it an ama two feet. So if the teva is 300 amas long, it's 600 feet long, it's 100 feet wide, and it's 60 feet tall. Explains Rabbeinu Machai, if you take all the animals in creation, they couldn't possibly fit into 50 such tevas, let alone one. If you do the math, and you realize the teva is not that large. And the Bronx Zoo is on 265 acres, and they have about 4,000 animals. If you take all the animals in creation, they couldn't possibly fit into such a small area as one teva. And explains Rabbi Ruchai, that's exactly what the Torah is teaching us. Hashem said to Noah as follows, You have to do your part. We can't possibly expect you to build a table large enough to house all the animals, the giraffes, the baboons, and the monkeys. There's just way, way too much. And there's no way you could possibly build a table large enough to house all the animals in creation. On the other hand, you can't just do nothing. You have to do as much as you can in the ways of the world. And once you've exhausted the ways of the world, then Hashem says, I will take over. And explains Rabbi Ruchai, that's exactly what the Torah is teaching us. 300 amas, 50 amas, 30 amas. There's no way that could have housed all the animals in creation. Hashem was saying to Noach, you have to do as much as you can do, and then you can rely on the nace. And explains Rabbi Ruchai, that is a foundational principle in the Torah that you'll see over and over throughout Tanakh. A person's obligated to go in the ways of the world, and only once he's exhausted the ways of the world, and then and only then can he rely on the nace. And Rabbeinu Machai explains, you'll see this over and over. He says, for instance, Yeshua. Yeshua brings the Klai Yisrael into Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael at the time was occupied by giants living in fortified cities. According to the ways of the world, there was no way they could have possibly won those wars. Yet they won those battles with such miraculous feats that not a single soldier died. Not a single Jewish soldier died, except one soldier died. And the question was, where was the sin? Achan, where was the chait? So ask Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar the point as follows. Yeshua knew that he was bringing the Klaistral into Eretzral, fortified cities, occupied by giants. Clearly, it was going to be miraculous. Why then did Yeshua have to say to the army, prepare yourself put on your armor, sharpen your sword, get ready for battle. They're going to win the battles anyway. It has to be a miracle. Explains the Rebbein Machai because that's exactly what the Torah is teaching us. You have to do all that you can do in the ways of the world. And only once you've exhausted that, then you can rely on the miracle. And if you'd like to see how far this principle goes, watch as follows. Hashem says to Shmuel Anovi, Ma'asti, 
Shem says to Shmuel, Ma'aste become disgusted with Shaul as the king. I no longer want Shaul to be the Melech. I want you to go and anoint one of Yishai's son to be the Melech. And you'll go there, and one of Yishai's sons, when you get there, I'll tell you which one, one of his sons will be the new king. At which point Shmuel turns to Hashem and says, Hashem, how could I go? Vishama Shaul v'hargeni. Shaul is going to hear that I'm going to appoint a new king in his stead, and he'll kill me. Hashem says, okay, take this little eagle, take this little calf, and you'll tell Shaul that you're going to bring a carbon, he'll fall for the ruse, and then you'll appoint one of Yishai's children to be the next king. Says the Chavos of Ovos, wait a minute, stop. This is a Baruch Hu, God, talking to a Navi, saying, go do something, and the Navi says, Hashem, I can't, big powerful King Shaul is going to kill me. Hashem should have blasted Shmuel. How dare you say that way? Who gives life? Who gives death? How could you be afraid of a little man? I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. But interestingly, that's not what Hashem said. Hashem said, okay, fine. Take this little eagle and you'll fool Shaul with this little trick. Explains Chavos The reason for this is because even a Novi Hashem, even a prophet of Hashem is not allowed to put himself into a makam sakana, into its dangerous situation. For him to have gone there was a makam sakana, and what Shmuel did was correct. He said to Hashem, it's dangerous, and Hashem said, you're right. Here's the answer. Take this little eagle, and you'll fool, you'll fool Shaul. Explains the Chavaz of Ovos, you see from your principle that even a Novi Hashem, receiving a directive straight from Hashem is not allowed to put himself into danger because we have to go and only once you've exhausted and then you're allowed to rely on Hashem and explains this is the principle you'll see over and over and over and if you'd like to know the balance how do we know what part we're supposed to do what part Hashem is supposed to do it's really quite simple I'll give you a mushal and you'll understand very very clearly and what the line is. Imagine that we go to a play. At the end of the play, the two actors get into a fight. One punches the other, one kicks and they <clears throat> grab each other, fall on the floor. The curtain comes down and plays over. Okay. And we go backstage after the um, 10 minutes later. And the two guys are two actors. One slaps the other back. Oh, you punched and I was so good. Oh, yeah. Oh, and you kick. Wow, I thought it was going to. Hey, what are you guys doing? You, Ten minutes ago, you're fighting on the, on, on the floor. Why, why are you slapping each other on the back now? They turn to you and say, what, what, what slap, what, fighting? That was a choreographed fight scene. I was supposed to swing high. He's supposed to duck. We're going through the motions. I believe that is a very apt muscle. When I go into the workforce, anyone watching me should see a man focused, a man with a very clear vision, a man who it looks like is doing exactly what he should do, and all the while I have to know I'm going through a choreographed fight scene. My job is to use the world in the ways of the world. And to earn a living, I have to get a job. To stay healthy, I have to eat right and exercise. When it's time to get married, I have to go out there and find the right one. And that's my job, to go through the motions. I have to use the world in the ways of the world. And I also have to know that every single outcome is determined by Hashem. And Hashem runs the world down to the minutiae. Both parts are true. Hashem runs the world. Hashem determines every outcome. And nevertheless, what Hashem expects from us is to go through the motions and to use the world in the ways of the world. And if you'd like to understand the balance, 
I have one more muscle that may help make it a little bit more clear. If you ever gone to the circus before Barnum and Bailey went out of business, <clears throat> one of the highlights of the show was the high wire act. There was an acrobat 150 feet over the ground. There was a wire stretched from one pole to the other, and he'd walk across the circus tent and he'd do various flips, trips, etc. He'd do all kinds of things on this high wire, and it was a very entertaining and clearly a very well-crafted routine. And it was a very famous part of the show. Now, everyone knew that there was a certain balance between the danger involved and the acrobat skill, because everyone understood that there was a safety net below. And if the acrobat missed for some reason, he would fall to the safety net below and he'd be safe. I believe it was the 1920s when Barnum and Bailey decided to add a little more electricity to the show. The same acrobat, same high wire, but no safety net. They were going to go through the entire show, and it wasn't going to be a safety net. Now, this fellow had been up there there thousands of times before, but this time it was very different. Because this time, as he walked out onto that high wire, he knew one misstep, and he would fall to his death to the concrete 150 feet below. And I believe that is a very apt muscle for a person's proper ishtadlis and bitachan. I have to be on that high wire, and, it, and to all eyes, there has to be, it's dependent on me. If I make one misstep, I'm dead. And all the while, I have to know that there's a safety net below. I have to walk that tightrope as if there's no safety net, and I have to deal with it as if my life depends on it. And all the while, I have to know that it doesn't make a difference. There's a safety net. Hashem is there. And this is one of the greatest challenges that we human beings face, to engage this world in the ways of the world, to be incredibly focused, and all the while know that it doesn't make a difference. And if you'd like to know why it is such a challenge, try it one day. It is very easy to sit in the base medrash all day and say, Hashem runs the world, Hashem runs the world. And it's also very easy to work 16 hours a day, sleep under your desk and say, I run the world. Both of those are easy and both of those are wrong. I have to engage in the world and the ways of the world. I have to be very proactive. I have to go by Derech HaTeva. And all the while, I have to know exactly what Hashem determined should be will happen. And I believe when you understand this, you'll know exactly how to act in every situation. Because there's one more caveat, and once we put this in, I think everything will gel. And that caveat is, <clears throat> provided that it's bracketed with the Torah's approach. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Imagine I own a successful business. <clears throat> we sell electronics, and <clears throat> one day my CFO comes into me and says, listen, boss, i got to tell you something. The profit margins are falling. Circuit City just opened across the street from us. And I know your policy for years has been not to stay open on Saturday. But listen, boss, I'm telling you, if we don't open up on Saturday, we're bankrupt. We're out of business. Okay, look, uh, I, I know the Chobos Lava says you have to go to the ways of the world. So obviously, I have to keep my store open on Saturday because the Torah says I have to act in the ways of the world. Well, not so fast. Torah also says, Work six days and don't work the seventh. 
You see, every decision that I make has to be defined and bracketed by the Torah's approach. And if the Torah says, don't work on Shabbos, I can't say I'm using the world and the ways in the world because that's the way Hashem wants me to do it, because it's not true. Because Hashem said, don't work on Shabbos. And Hashem said, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. And I can't say I'm doing my Ishtadlis when I violate the Torah's principle. And when you understand this, you understand exactly the balance and exactly how to be no way, got to act in every situation. I have to go in the ways of the world as defined by, as bracketed by the Torah. The ways of the world as defined by the Torah means I use the world in the ways of the world as exactly as Hashem said I should. So to earn a living, I got to work. And I have to work very hard and very diligently. But the Torah says I also have to be a mensch. I have to learn, I have to dominate, I have to be a father, I have to be a husband. And there are many other obligations. And if the only way I can earn a living is by working 16 hours a day, well, guess what? I can't say that that's what the Torah wants me to do. Because the Torah said I have many other obligations, including Krishna, including dominant, including learning, including being a father, including being a husband. And I have to find that balance. That balance is using the world in the ways of the world as defined by the Torah. We don't work on Shabbos. We don't work inordinate amount of hours. We don't lie. We don't steal. We don't cheat. But I don't lie, steal, and cheat, not because it's wrong. I don't lie, steal, and cheat because that's not what Hashem wants me to do. I'm using the world in the ways of the world because Hashem told me to. But Hashem told me to be honest in business. Hashem told me to pay taxes as I'm supposed to, use every legal loophole that's legal, but nothing that's illegal. Hashem told me to be straight and honest. My word is my word. And I can't say I'm using the world in the ways of the world to serve Hashem and then go lie, steal, and cheat and do everything wrong because I'm serving Hashem. That's not true. And I want to share with you one of those great principles. When you see Maishi, Maishi shows up to the daf Yomi with a Starbucks coffee. Maishi does the daf. And Maishi then puts on tefillin. And Maishi davens like a mensch. And you know Maishi. He gives a lot of stucca. And he's a real good guy. And you're very impressed. And as Maishi rolls up his tefillin, he says these words, that was for Hashem, and now this is for me. And with those words, he goes to work. I used to look at Moshe as half a kofer, as Hashem lives in the base medrash, but Hashem doesn't live in the work world. Now, it may be true that he's half a kofer, but I believe he's making a more fundamental mistake than that. Why does Hashem want you to work eight hours a day? Hashem has lots and lots of money. Hashem has property in Manhattan. Hashem has diamond mines in South Africa. Hashem has oil fields in South Arabia, Saudi Arabia. Hashem doesn't need you to work to make money. Hashem has lots and lots of money. Hashem wants you to work for one reason, so that you'll be challenged with the great, great test of life. Are you able to use this world in the ways of the world and know all the while that Hashem is the one who determines every outcome? And because that's how you grow in Amuna. That's how you grow in Bitochan. And if you wrap up your tefillin and say the words, that was for Hashem and this is for me, you're fundamentally missing the purpose of work. You're fundamentally missing why Hashem wants us to go to work, why Hashem wants us to use the world in the ways of the world. And Hashem wants us to do that because that is the great challenge. The way you really grow in a moon, the way you cut through the static, the way it becomes real is when you're challenged to earn a living. 
and you have to work very, very diligently and you have to be there on the high wire and it's got to look to everyone like there's no safety net and you have to know all the while that there is a safety net and that's how it becomes real to you that Hashem is the one who really runs the world. You see, when you sit in the base meditation and say, Hashem runs the world, Hashem is in charge, that's not called Amuna. That's not real. It's real when you're in the challenge, when you're in the thick and thin of life, when there's a gun held to your head, when the doctor says, I got bad news for you, and when your wife says, we can't pay our bills, that's when the real test of Amuna comes in, and that's where the real growth happens. When you're able to, at that point, say, I've done my part, Hashem, it's up to you, that's where you grow in Amuna. But it's only with those challenges. It's only by using the world and the ways of the world, and only then by seeing Hashem right there, that's how you grow. And if you say the words, that was for Hashem and this is for me, I'm out to earn my living, you're fundamentally missing the ballpark, you're missing everything, and you're missing the very purpose that Hashem wants you to do things. And I think this Chazal shares with us a tremendous principle. If you'd like to know why Hashem said to Moshe, throw the clump of gold into the fire, because that was Moshe's ishtadlis. But Hashem said, you have to do ishtadlis, and that makes sense. You see, if you don't have an image of what you're doing, it's not your act. You can't possibly make the menorah, Moshe Benu, it's beyond your capacity. Of course it's beyond your capacity, but you have to have a vision of what it is that you're doing. The shtadlis in this case is beyond your capacity. All that you can do is throw your clump of gold into the fire, but you have to have an image of what it is that you're doing, because if you don't have that image, it's not your misa. Moshe Rabbeinu was the one who made the menorah. I couldn't make the menorah. The fire made it. No, he made it. He had an image. He had a vision of what it was. The way he made it was the way Hashem told him to do it, to take his clump of gold and throw it into the fire. Out came that menorah, and that was Moshe Rabbeinu's action. But if he didn't have a vision of what it was that he was trying to do, that could not be considered his action. Once he had that vision, and Hashem said, this is the Ishtadlis, so this is the way you make a menorah. How do you build a How do you build teva? You bang together boards. How do you grow a tree? You take an acorn and put it in the ground. How do you make a menorah? You take a clump of gold and put it in the fire. And that's the hishtadlis. But if you don't have a vision, you don't have an image for what it is that you're doing, we can't call it your action. And I believe that this Rashi shares with us a fundamental yesod. There will be many, many situations in life where you will not have a direct plan where it will be impossible for you to plan. And I'll give you a couple of good for instances. Let's assume you're a young man and you want to get married. Uh, let's say you're 20, 22, 24, whatever the age may be. And you say, I want to get married. Okay, very nice. Now, here's the question. When you get married, how long do you plan on being married for? So let's assume you're 24 and you're going to live in Yitzhashem to 120, whatever. Let's say 50 years, 70 years, 80 years. 80 years of marriage. Okay, very good. Here's my question. If you're 24 years of age, do you know what you're going to be like at 45? Do you know what you're going to be like at 55? How about at 65? How can you possibly choose the right person for you for life? You're going to change dramatically. You're going to be in a vastly different position in life. You've never been that age and you don't know how to act. How do you know what you're going to need? Even if you had the wisdom of Shlomo Melech and you understood the other gender, and even if you understood marriage, 
And even if you understood what it is that you need, the best you could ever convince me of is that you know what you need now at 24 years of age. But you have to make a choice now for the person that you're going to share your life with at 24, at 44, at 84. How do you know what you're going to need at 84? How do you know? How could you possibly make that decision? How could you possibly know that? And if a person were rational and thinking clearly, they'd recognize that some jobs are well, well beyond human capacity. Any person who thinks, I know, I know what I need. I know the perfect perfect combination of character traits and perfect, I know the opposite gender well enough. I know the intricacies of marriage. And even if you were to convince me that you know all that, which I guarantee you don't at 24 years of age, you surely don't know yourself. But more than anything, you don't know where you're going to be at 45, at 65, and 85. How can you know who the right one is? And it's at that point you have to recognize that your job is not to make the right decision. You can't make the right decision. There'll be many, many situations in life where you cannot make the right decision. You're only obligated to make the best decision you can with the information that you have. When you're going out, you do your start list. You go out, you check the person out, and you take the paper test, you find out and broad general brushstrokes. You guys in the same place, you're looking to raise the same kind of family. You take the Bashar test, you see if there's a commonality and just sort of flows. And then you say the words, I cannot make this decision. I rely on you, Hashem. She passed the paper test, passed the Bashar test. It seems to be the right one. You then take your clump of gold and you throw it in the fire. You say, Hashem, I've done my part. Now it's up to you. And this is something that will guide you through so many situations in life. There'll be many, many situations where you are incapable of making the right decision. The doctor says, if we operate on your mother, she may die. But the doctor says, if we don't operate on your mother, she definitely will die. So you say to the doctor, what do you recommend? doctor says, I don't know. So you ask another doctor and another doctor and another doctor. And they all tell you, I don't know. What do you do? You make the best decision you have, and you gather the best medical knowledge you have, and you ask Das Torah, and based on the information you have in front of you, you make the best decision you can. You cannot make the right decision because you can't tell the future. But you're not obligated to make the best, the right decision. You're only obligated to make the best decision in the world. And what that means in plain simple language is, if your mother died in that operation, you have to say to yourself, I did my part. And if your mother lived, you have to say, I did my part. It wasn't me. I did my ishtadlis. My ishtadlis was to ask the best medical knowledge I could get at the time. I asked Das Torah. I thought about it. I made it the best decision I could. And now I rely on Hashem. I take my heavy load and put it on my creator. But it's at that moment that you realize I'm incapable of making the right decision. I'm not obligated, nor can I. I only have to make the best decision that I can. And you'll find that this is something that happens time after time after time in life. The only people who know exactly what's right, exactly what they need, exactly the right thing to do, are people who are extremely immature or arrogant. Because there'll be many, many situations in life where if you're rational, if you think it out clearly, you'll recognize these decisions are well beyond my capacity. But again, I'm not obligated to make the right decision. I'm only obligated to make the best decision I can.
And I'll share with you another example of this concept that's a little bit more closer to, let's call it closer to day-to-day life. On a regular basis, young men ask me, what should I do to earn a living? So I go through the typical Shmooz 26, choosing a career, what do you enjoy, what's your natia? I explain to the Chovaz always explains, Hashem gives a nature to each person, and just like the cat has an instinct to hunt for the mouse, the robin has an instinct to hunt for the worm, Hashem gives each human being an instinctive desire for a particular kind of work. Some people love working with their hands, some people are real numbers guys. My son, when he was six years old, was buying and selling, I said to my wife, I know what he's supposed to be doing, he's supposed to be in business. Each person was given a different nature, a different inclination, and that's what you're supposed to pursue. You're supposed to go out into the workplace, and you're supposed to ask yourself, how can I use my talents, my skill to further my cause? You're supposed to use your best judgment, and you're supposed to go out there and use your talents in the most effective way you can in the world. Okay. Now, that being said, again, on a regular basis, young men come to me and say, what should I do to earn a living? What field should I go into? So we look at this field, effort, what's your nature, and what's your natia? And here's the dilemma that I'm stuck with all the time. What does it cost to live in metropolitan New York City today? Let's say you have a family of six kids, eight kids, and you're paying yeshiva tuition. Uh, and what is the cost today? How much money do you have to earn? So let's do the math. If you have six kids, eight kids, someone that range, and you're paying roughly $15,000 uh, per child per year tuition. So you're pretty close to 80000 to $100,000 in tuition. You got a mortgage on your house that's going to be, let's say, another forty, fifty thousand 50000 a year. You have food, you have clothing, you have various expenses. I do not know how it's possible to live in the New York City area earning under 250000 a year, and that's really scraping it. That's really, really just I don't want to say poverty level, but but that's it. There is no way, unless someone explains to me the math in a different way, I just don't know how you could do it. And I've spoken to people. I've spoken to principals who are involved with hundreds and hundreds of families. I've spoken to various Askanim who are involved with community at large. And that seems to be about the right number. You have to earn somewhere around $250,000 a year just to make it in today's world. Well, here's the problem. What job do you know that you can earn $250,000 a year? Now, listen, if you start a business and you're very successful, you can earn lots and lots of money. I get it. But how many jobs do you know that you can earn $250,000 a year? And again, that's not wealth. That's basic making it. And if you're not sure that it's a difficult number to reach, let me share with you the statistics. In the United States of America, about 1.5% of the population make that much money. So here's the problem. You expect the average Tom, Dick, and Harry, every Moshe, David, and Shlomi to make what 1.5% of the rest of the country makes. Now, I understand that there are many bright, talented fellows, and there are some guys who are very capable, and some guys who can start a business and make a million dollars. I get it. I got that. But are you telling me that the average Shlomi, the average Moshe, the average David is expected to make what 1.5% of the population makes? So obviously it means a guy can't get married and have, have a family because there's no way in the world. Listen, I'm a plumber. I'm, a, I'm an accountant. I'm making $50,000, $100,000 a year. There's no way I could have a family. And it's at that point that you have to say, oh, who runs the world? 
When I'm using the world, it's only for one reason, because Hashem told me to use the world and the ways of the world. He is the one who determines every outcome. He is the one who's responsible for everything. My job is to do my ishtalis in the ways of the world as defined by the Torah. The Torah expects me to get married. The Torah expects me to have a family and not to have 1.5 kids and a dog living in a picket white fenced house. The Torah expects me to have a Torah family, and that means to get married and have a family and have children, have as many children as I can properly bring up. And what that means in plain, simple language is I have to take my lump of gold, throw it into the fire and say, Hashem, I don't have an answer here. I cannot answer this question. And the best I can do is I ask myself, what are my talents? What are my strengths? I go out there in the marketplace and I'm fully focused. I'm very, very focused on what I'm doing. And I know that exactly what's supposed to happen. You're going to determine. I don't know how it's going to happen, but Hashem, that's your part. My part is to be very, very focused my part is to do my shtadlis, and I know that you determine every outcome. I think this Chazal shares with us a perspective on life. If you'd like to know Emunah and Bitochen, how do we know what to do, when to do? I think that's exactly the Yisod. Hashem runs every outcome. Everything that happens, as the Rambam says, Emunah Shalem, with a complete understanding. I understand that a bo- Hashem is Bore Umanig, he alone does, did, and will do every activity under the sun. I understand when someone insults me, I turn my eyes heavenwards and say, Hashem, thank you for revealing a few of my many, many flaws, because I understand that no human being can harm me, no human being can help me. When you yell at me, when you scream at me, I understand it's a loudspeaker. There's someone speaking into the microphone that someone is Hashem. Because if that pain wasn't coming to me, you couldn't bring it to me. And as you cannot harm me, you cannot help me. Every single outcome is completely determined, completely orchestrated by Hashem. That's Hashem's part. And my part, as Rabbi Machai teaches us, is to use the world in the ways of the world. Noah had to build a teva, 300 amas wide, 50 amas <clears throat> this way. Why that size? because that's as much as you could be expected to do. You have to do as much as you can in the ways of the world, and only then can you rely on an ace. That's why Yeshua told the army, put on your armor, sharpen your swords, go into Eretz Yisrael. <clears throat> he knew every battle would be won with miracles, but we have to do as much as we can in the ways of the world, and only then can you rely on an ace. And that's why Shmuel said to Hashem, I can't go, it's too dangerous. And that is the assault. I'm on that tightrope. I have to go on that tightrope as if there's no safety net. I have to go out there with full full zeal and full speed, boring ahead, knowing all the while that, of course, there's a safety net. My job is just go through the choreographed fight scene. I'm going to throw those punches, but whether they land or not, determined by Hashem. And the only caveat that you have to keep in mind is that I'm using the world in the ways of the world as defined by the Torah. The Torah expects me to work in a particular way. The Torah expects me to be honest. The Torah expects me to be a mensch. Torah expects me to be a husband. The Torah expects me to be a father. I have to set my boundaries. I have to put in a very real ishtadlis and I have to figure out how I can do the best I can. And there'll be many situations where I can't possibly do this. Many situations where I can't know the right answer, whether it's getting married or making medical decisions or maybe making life decisions and many investments. I have a great opportunity in front of me. Do I do it or don't I? Do, don't, do, don't. I get the best information I can. I use my best judgment 
And then I throw my lump of gold into the fire. I say, Hashem, you're the one who runs the world. I've done my part. Now it's up to you. When you do this, you understand life. There's a sense of calm, equanimity. You understand your job in this world. You understand Hashem's job. And then you grow, you accomplish, you use the world as you're supposed to. And now what I'd like to do is I'd like to stop at this point because I'd like to open the floor to question. I'm hoping that people have questions because I think this is a very applicable topic. And I would like to take questions on this uh, topic. Um, okay. Um, okay, I see many Kolo younger lights sitting in Kolo and relying on Hashem for Parnassus to support their family. How does that work? Okay, so first of all, there is a Rambam that explains that Shevet Levi was guaranteed and they can learn. And uh, Mephoshim explained that there is a certain exception for learning Torah, that you're allowed to rely on Hashem to provide, provided you are the kind of person who should be learning. First of all, really, let me back up for a minute here. The average young couple getting married today usually can support themselves without tremendous strain. If a woman has a decent job, uh, certainly before there are kids on the scene, usually the expenses aren't that great. If parents help out, it's not that unusual. And certainly where I come from in my yeshiva, five, six years of cola was considered normal. And now, again, you can't live extravagant. You can't live lavishly. But in the beginning years, the expenses aren't that great. And somehow it is that things work out. There is a certain exception. If you're worthy to learn, Hashem allows you to be that person as Shevet Levi was given the job of learning, and that was their exception, so too the person is really worthy of it. Hashem arranges it that he's able to learn for a while. Now, that may not be forever, and I'm not a big proponent of Kolo for life. I don't think it, first of all, I think it's destructive for most people, to be honest with you. Um, and usually the system weeds itself out because most people aren't really cut out for that. But again, if a person is, Hashem provides to them. So there's certain ishtadlises that a person, meaning, again, let's assume that uh, my boss says, if I don't come to I don't come to work on Shabbos, I'm going to lose my job. If I lose my job, I'm never going to be able to pay my mortgage. I'm not going to be able to pay my, my expenses. Am I allowed to work on Shabbos? The answer is, of course not. Well, <clears throat> what's going to be? The answer is, I'm supposed to use the world in ways the world is defined by Hashem. One of the exceptions is kolal. You're allowed to learn, again, if you're worthy of it and you're really serious in learning, and Hashem allows you to, it's a certain exception that you're allowed to do it. And again, it's for a certain amount of years. It's not forever. So I think that is the exception, but it's not It's not forever. Um, please feel free. If you have a question, please feel free to raise your hands. Uh, I'll gladly take questions. Um, I much prefer questions uh, by people raising their hands to rather than writing in. Um, so if you have questions, please feel free to Raise your hand if a question. If not, I'll take some of the uh, <clears throat> questions that were written in. Uh, here is a question. Let's say a lady who needs to work for family, Parnassa. How should she juggle the needs of children, needs of family, and putting in hours at work? Um, okay, addendum. In a situation where she gets paid by the hour. Okay, so <clears throat> this is a very, very unfortunate situation that we live in today that unfortunately women have to work. Um, I have no problem with women when you're first married working. Once there are kids in the scene, and once there are especially uh, quite a number of kids on the scene, it's a very, very big bidiyevid. And gentlemen, let me, let me make it very clear. Do everything in your power to 
hopefully arrange things that your wife doesn't have to work. Now, most of the time it doesn't work that way. And most families, unfortunately, have to have two bread earners. But you have to recognize that as a husband, the biggest favor you can do for your family is to allow your wife to be the mother of your children. And if she's working nine to five, it's going to be very difficult for her to be the mother of your children. She could be a part-time mother, an assistant mother, but she's not going to be fully the mother of your children. Now, I'm much aware that unfortunately in our day and age, many families, if not most, need two bread earners. My only advice is, as much as possible, try to make sure that the woman works at most half a day or some limited hours. But certainly when it gets to a point where she's no longer able to attend to her children and take care of her family, you have to say, stop, that's it. Meaning, if you tell me that the only way you're going to make ends meet is if a woman works 40, 50 hours a week, I say, sorry, Uh -uh uh-uh. You have to figure out another solution because that is not the way that children are brought up. If a mother's working 40, 50 hours a week, she's not a mother. You tell me a woman has to work, I get it, I understand it. But you have to figure out a way that she's able to work part-time, even 30 hours a week, but she has to have the ability to be a mother. You also have to make sure that you have enough cleaning help, enough babysitting, enough pieces involved so that she doesn't also have to do a lot of the chores around the house. And it could be done. It certainly can be done if a woman works 20, 30 hours a week and there's enough cleaning help and enough you might take out, you do whatever's needed uh, to make sure that she has then time to be the mother of your children. More than anything, you want the mother of your children to be on the floor with your kids, playing with them, tending to their needs, being there for, for them. You don't want her being the cook and the maid and the cleaner. You hire people for that, and Hashem helps. But again, there has to be a gather. And the boundary is, if you tell me the only way you make ends meet is if you're working 40, 50 hours a week for a woman, I'm sorry, I, I just uh, I have a very hard time with that. It's hard to hear, and that's a Torah's perspective. Um, by the way, and let me say this as an aside, but I'm a big, big proponent of moving out of town. Out of town doesn't mean out of Brooklyn. Out of town means out of the New York tri-state area. You move out of town, and all of a sudden, the cost of living drops dramatically. We lived for, we were, for 15 years, how many years, no, sorry, for 12 years, we lived in Rochester. When we moved from Rochester to Muncie, our cost of living went up, but it didn't double. Our cost of living tripled. We were a young family, and we had, you know, already five kids. We're pretty established. And when we moved from Rochester to Muncie, our cost of living tripled. I don't have to tell you that it's very hard to make three times the amount of money. So if you have the opportunity to move out of town, run, jump. Don't tell me your kids are getting better education here. I don't believe for a minute. There are many, many solid out-of-town communities where your children will get a better chinuch, a better education. They'll be more wholesome, more normal. You won't have to work crazy hours. I'm a huge, huge proponent for moving out of town. There are many, many out-of-town communities now that are solid Makomos of Torah, very, very fine yeshivas and beishakos, everything established, everything ready, and the cost of living is half or a third of what it is in the tri-state area. Um, look into it. It's it's well worth looking into because I think it's a very, very good, uh, very, very good situation. Okay, when I spend more time at work, I feel guilty for not being home. When I spend less time, I feel guilty not doing Ishtalas for Parnassah. So assuming that's a woman who asks that question, let's stop with the guilt. 
because you have to define your role and know it well. Gentlemen, let me be clear. When you sign Naksuba, on a Eflach Ve'ezon Ve'farnes, I will treat my wife with honor. I will support her. I will clothe her, give her, take care of her needs. It's the husband's obligation to support his wife. Now, if we're in a situation where unfortunately we are, where most women have to work, that's an additional piece. An additional piece means you also contribute. But your primary job is to be the mother of your children, to be the wife of your husband. That's what you put on the planet for. You won't put on the planet to be an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, an Indian chief. You put on the planet to be a mother, to be a wife. And that's your primary job. Now, if you also have to work outside of the house, if you also have to put in time, okay. But that means also. But that's a limited amount of time. It's a limited part. Your primary role is to be mother and wife. You are the Akaris of bias. So the guilt comes from not clearly having your role defined. When you clearly define your role, your role is to be wife and mother, primary. Bread earner is your husband's job. You're going to help out? That's great. You help out on the side, but your primary job is to be the wife and the mother. When you understand that, I think there's much less of the conflict, much less of the guilt. Okay, if anyone has questions, please feel free to raise your hand. Also, if you've not gotten a chance yet to get the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, it's available in your storm stores. It's available on Amazon. It's available on theschmooze.com. If you purchase it on theschmooze.com, you also get the ebook, as well as the audio book, as well as the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp as a free bonus. The audio book is great for guys. If you drive, if you work out, and you have AD, what's that? ADD, ADHD, whatever, right? Okay, yeah. So you put on the audio book. You put on the audio book when you're working out. You put on the audio book while you're driving. And it's, you have all the information. It's all there. So if you'd like a free copy of the audio book, ebook, as well as marriage transformation bootcamp, go to the schmooze.com, T H E S H M U Z.com. And you can order the book there. But again, it's available on Amazon. It's available in your local bookstores. I thank you very much for joining. I apologize next week. There will not be a Shmooz Live next week. I'll be in Baltimore. I have a family wedding. I will not be, there will not be a Shmooz Live. Um, so I hope you join us. The Wednesday night, Shia Derech Hashem Shia will be on. I hope you have a good Shabbos. Hope to see you next week at the Derech Hashem Shia. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.